At 95 years young, National Park Ranger Betty Reed Soskin is a national treasure. Stationed at the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historic Site in Richmond, California, she interprets the cultural narrative of life in America during one of the most turbulent periods in time. Drawing on her personal experience of the 1940s, she offers a compelling look into the past that helps us to understand who we are today and chart a course towards a brighter tomorrow. As an African-American woman who endured and survived the racially motivated oppression of previous generations, Soskins offers young people of color especially the hope and motivation to become leaders and role models themselves in the future. I get so tired of being introduced as the oldest park ranger. <laughs> I also want you to know that that is such an honor. Because I come from a generation that has overcome. Betty Reed Soskins addressed a gathering of more than 200 young people of color at an event called the PGM-1 Summit in Berkeley, California. PGM stands for People of the Global Majority, an emerging new generation of black and brown people around the world who are mobilizing to achieve lasting social change. Much like those of her generation who rallied to confront the threat of foreign armies during World War II, Soskin wants the young people of today to stand up against the rising challenges of the 21st century. Back in 1942, my generation had to confront the threat of fascist world domination. We did that without knowing whether we'd prevail. We did that in the Greater Bay Area by competing in the Kaiser shipyards for 747 ships in three years and eight months. We did that at a time that was the greatest mobilization of workers since the building of the pyramids of the Great Wall of China. Every one of us was involved in the great arsenal of democracy. Leaving a model for a generation, yours, that's going to have to match and exceed that great mobilization, this time, internationally. You're going to do it against climate change, global warming, rising sea levels, and you're going to do it under a still flawed social system. But you're going to prevail. Because I've lived now almost 96 years. And what I have learned in those 96 years is the fact that ever since 1776, my nation has experienced an upward spiral, cyclical periods of chaos. And it's in those periods of chaos that democracy is redefined. We're in another one of those now. Those periods provide opportunities to reset the buttons, allows us to redefine what democracy means, and to get on with the project of forming that more perfect union. 
After so many years of life experience in this country, Ranger Betty Reed Soskin understands that the great experiment of democracy is an ongoing process. Like ascending a spiral staircase, we wind our way round and round, getting higher and higher, though we seem to find ourselves in the same place time and time again. And here we are back to once more test and redefine the integrity of American democracy. We've been here before. Right after her talk in Berkeley, Ranger Soskin shared with me her thoughts on our history and the role each of us may play to protect the legacy of our future. I'm James Edward Mills, and you're listening to The Joy Trip Project. My name is Betty Reed Soskin. I'm a park ranger at the Rosie the Riveter World War II Home Park, National Historic Park in Richmond, California. Tell me just a little bit about your background. Where are you from originally, and how did you come to Northern California? I actually came in Northern California as a result of the 1927 Great Floods in New Orleans, which was our ancestral home. My mother arrived in Oakland that year with three little girls and everything we had left in a couple of cardboard suitcases to join her father, who was my grandfather, who had settled here at the end of the First World War. So that I became a Californian at the age of six. And from that experience, what did your family do there? What was it like here at that time? It was at a time when it was possible for me to grow up as a second-generation Californian rather than an African-American, because there were probably not more than 10,000 African-Americans between Sacramento and Monterey. It was not because bigotry and segregation didn't exist. It was that it had not yet been formalized on the West Coast, so that there were not signs that said where I could go or where I could be. Everything was encouched in gentlemen's agreements at the time, so that it was subtle. But that was the California that I grew up in. I was educated in Oakland at a time before Proposition 13, which meant that it was at a time when California's public education was the envy of the country and the world. So that I got a head start, actually. I didn't get introduced to formal segregation until the Second World War as a young adult. That's remarkable. Yeah. Can you describe for me what that transition was like? What changed? Very confusing. It was at a time when I was a very bright child. I had learned, uh, been, become aware in my mid-teens that I was in a world that was mad, that you could not conduct a war to save democracy with the segregated armed forces. That was delusional. So that I was already aware of that, and if white folks didn't understand that, what else didn't they understand? So that my life began to unfold with an awareness of those gaps in our national ethic. In a child that had grown up benefiting by ideal democracy in a way, 
so that my, my life experience was very, very unique. I didn't actually experience black identification in all of its political reality until the 60s, which was a time when I had to give all that up and choose sides and became politically black and had to dump all that early education, pretty much. So that I've lived a life of extremes in a country that never did really live up to its ideals, but were embedded firmly in me. And I think that now as a park ranger, which I became incidentally 85, I didn't come into the park long enough to become a part of the park culture. So that the national parks had to pretty much adjust to me because I was firm, so firmly identified in who I was. And I've experienced this unbelievable kind of phenomenon where I'm having a disproportionate effect upon the work that I do simply because of the beginnings that I enjoyed. You described yourself as being politically black around the 1960s. And is that where your social awareness began to perhaps shift? And what was no, that it, beca it became dramatic because because I married a man who was from a family that had made its way across the country from uh, Griffin, Georgia, at the first sounding of campfire of the Civil War. He, his father, and his grandmother were all born in Berkeley, California. So the, the two of us had this unique African-American experience when we married each other. We, married, we met when I was 14 and he was 17, so that he was a childhood friend. Mel was in his senior year at the University of San Francisco when the Second World War broke out. He had never experienced life in the South. He had grown up in a family that was Californian from birth. When the war was over in 1945, we had earned enough to have built our own home, but we were reading Architectural Digest and Sunset Magazine and House Beautiful, and the house we wanted to build was not possible in the areas that suddenly the real estate industry had dropped strings around areas where blacks could live. And because we were Californians, primarily, we chose to live in the suburbs because Mel was, at that time, playing professional football. And his teammates were all living in the suburbs. And so he, without thinking, figured that these white folks were going to catch up and learned eventually that we were by rights. And we lived in the Diablo Valley with five years of death threats which is when I became radicalized because where my race had been incidental most of my life, suddenly it was the defining factor in my life. We were that black family on the corner of Boulevard Way and Warren Road. The first year that we were out there, my third grader, who was the only black kid in his school, experienced the fact that the PTA in that elementary school that year chose to do a minstrel show as a fundraiser 
and all of his teachers and the administrators were in blackface. Now that's in 1953. That's who we were. That same community, 20 years later, sent me to represent them as a McGovern delegate to Miami. That's how fast social change was occurring in this area. This is still the place where the visionaries come to realize their wildest dreams because of all of that social action that had to take place in the Bay Area because it was a time we couldn't take on a broken social system. We were all living under the common threat of fascist world domination. So that we had to negotiate every single day at the individual level. And it's that acceleration that accelerated the rate of change so that to this day it still radiates out of this place into the rest of the country. I've been a benefit of all of that. My generation in this area was the benefit of, of those kinds of social changes, which is still occurring. I consider that an absolute privilege because all of the extremes have been a part of my life at one decade or another. And now I'm sort of being all the women that I ever was at 95. And I have, in the National Park Service, been given a venue in which all of that can happen and which I am living all that out with complete support of, of a federal agency. I'm running probably the only federally funded revolution in the country. <laughs> You've been a park ranger for just over since 10 I was years? 85. Since you were 85 years old. I've been you... with the National Park Service since uh, 2003. I was a consultant mm -hmm. at that time. But you see, I went into the suburbs having experienced life working in the war effort in a Jim Crow segregated union hall. I moved out to the suburbs where I raised my children and then 20 years later returned from the suburbs after 20, well, more than 20 years after raising four kids for adulthood, outliving two husbands, doing lots and lots of things over lots of decades. But I returned as a field representative, remember the California State Assembly, into the same city in which I had been in a Jim Crow Union Hall. That does not illustrate a sign of personal achievement. That indicates how much social change occurred in this area over those 70 intervening years, and I've never forgotten it. And so your history, your heritage, your legacy, your understanding of that how these things that work. I'm, yeah, and that's what I'm able to share at this point in my life because there are very few illusions for me. I've lived all of it. You know, I once heard you say in, an, in another interview that you had succeeded in outliving your rage. But you know what? I found that that was really dormant. That Has your rage reawakened? Yeah. Tell me how. S situationally. I think it, it mostly was reawakened by the succession of police shootings of black men that I could no longer explain to myself. And I found that that rage, which I thought I had outlived, had only been lying dormant. And it became again a motivator, which is what it should have been all the time, I think. 
So what do we do now? I mean, you gave a very inspirational speech just a moment ago regarding the next generation's role in oh, I do believe. moving this forward. Tell us what we can learn from I, your experience. I, I really, yeah, I really do believe that I have lived long enough now to be able to see the patterns as I look back. And I know that since 1776, cyclically, this nation in this great experiment in democracy goes through periods of chaos. The one that's most definitive in my lifetime was probably the 60s. But there have been many such places. I guess I think Alexander Hamilton and the others would attest to that, that there have been those. But it's, I envision life now as an upward spiral, that we keep touching the same places at higher and higher levels. I'm not enslaved, though my great-grandmother was born into slavery in 1846, and I knew her. I was 27 when she died. I was married and a mother by the time we lost my slave ancestor. So that I'm very aware of that, but I'm also aware of the movement that has occurred over that time. And that it's during those periods of chaos, and I see that we are right now in another one of those. Those are the times when democracy is redefined. Every generation has to redefine democracy or it will die. And that uh, we are now in none of those places of opportunity. And I see this because I have lived through the threat of fascist world domination and we outlived that by outproducing the enemy and turning the course of the war around. I know that it can be gotten through and I know how dark it can look. I lived in blackouts. I lived in, in a period where we lost 54.8 million people in war casualties. That we lost 37,600 people on the home front alone, which ushered in OSHA. That the chaos that we went through in, 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 during the Second World War on the home front ushered in the 60s. And I can begin to see now, because of longevity, I can see those patterns and where they wound up. I see us now in another one of those periods of opportunity. And that uh, these kids in this conference represented for me something that I've never experienced before. I've never been in a conference where everyone was there because of their mixed heritage. This is the first time. I've always been in diversity conferences where the white folks in the room were considered the saviors for the rest of us. This was not that. This was something new. This is something that I am the forerunner to. I am the original mixed person. I can't even look back and figure out who was the white person in my family until 1835. I have been out of New Orleans as a, as a Creole, a mixed heritage, all that time, all my lifetime. My children, one of them has married an Asian woman. My grandchildren, for them, race is a political choice. It no longer has any biological meaning at all because they're everything. That room that I was in this morning is filled with those people like my grandchildren. They are the forerunners of the future. And they have got to pick up and recreate that incredible mobilization this time against a changing planet. 
but they're going to do it because we've all done it. And they will, and their, their turn, they will assume that mantle, and I'm sure of it. And what I was trying to do was to give them word that that is the future for them. That there's nothing new. The change is irresistible. And that it's only the nature of that change that has to be managed. And this is the game that's on for them. And I hope that they can take hold. And I really saw that maybe, maybe they're ready for that. But only if we can dissuade them of the despair that I also see in that room. But we experience that same despair in my time. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. This has okay. been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. National Park Ranger Betty Soskin is a great inspiration. In 2017, she received an honorary doctorate degree in arts and science from Mills College in Oakland, California, in recognition of her lifetime of social activism and community service. For the Joy Chip Project, this is James Edward Mills.